You're listening to the Gov Future Podcast, highlighting discussions and insights on innovative technology impacting the public sector. Hear from experts working with and inside the government on ways that technology is shaping the future of the public sector. On this episode, we feature a panel discussion from the May 18th, 2023 Gov Future Forum event in Washington, D.C. on the topic, Unleashing the Power of Advanced Analytics, Exploring the Future of Data-Driven Decision-Making. We'll hear how advanced analytics and use of AI are impacting government at all levels. The panelists represented the National Institutes of Health, NIH, CDC's National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, NIOSH, and Alteryx. Stay tuned. All right. Well, hello, everybody. I'm Kathleen Mulch. I'm an executive director here at GovFuture. And we are so excited to have with us, it's unleashing the power of advanced analytics, exploring the future of data-driven decision-making. We had really great themes with how data is powering a lot of these different organizations and government agencies. So I am going to turn this over now. I'm going to have maybe one minute introduction. I'm going to let the panelists introduce themselves. So we'll start with John from Alter. Good morning. I'm John Landers from Alterx. Um, located here in Northern Virginia uh, as a solutions engineer. We do self-service data analytics. And as I explained a little earlier, uh, uh, it's a platform to make it very easy to work with data uh, across the whole spectrum from brain data into machine learning and uh, the, the early part of artificial intelligence. Hi, good morning. I'm Stacey Marovich. I'm a health informatics scientist at CDC NIOSH, which is the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. And um, I demoed earlier one of our big projects, which is auto-coding uh, work data and um, Basically, we just work to, you know, in the in the area of occupational safety and health and trying to get data collected in standardized ways and coded in standardized ways so that it can be uh, meaningfully used for, uh, you know, research and analysis in order to inform um, interventions and preventions, you know, to basically make uh, workers safer and healthier. Thanks. Hi, good morning. I'm Susan Greger. I'm the Associate Director of Data Science at the National Institutes of Health. Uh, my role is to work across all of our 27 institutes and centers and offices to catalyze data science, artificial intelligence, and computing. Although most of the work I do is with the um, research community, there is a component of NIH that is government agency. And so I'm super glad that I came today because I heard a lot of really exciting ideas that I can take back to my agency. So thank you for the invitation. Yes, and you'll notice Elham Tabasi is on here. She unfortunately got sick this morning, so she is not able to make it, but we are looking to get her back on another panel. So just want to let everybody know why she's not up here. So I'd like to start by, you know, asking the question, what do you see as the most significant challenges that agencies are facing when leveraging advanced analytics? And, you know, how are you addressing that? I know we had a great panel. We had a great demo today from Stacey. We had a great demo last month from John. So maybe how are you doing that? We'll start with Susan and work our way down. Oh, thank you. Um, for us, one of the bigger challenges is uh, looking at transparency and bias. And I'm sure that this is something that you're all very familiar with. If you're using large language models, they hallucinate, um, which in the healthcare sector can be quite um, a substantial problem. And so for us, we're, we're really looking at not just large language models, but AI, ML in general, 
how can we create more ethical and more um, transparent and hopefully less biases in our data sets and in our algorithms? This for us is a really big challenge uh, because of the widespread use of chat GPT and BARD and other capabilities where people are asking questions that would relate to their health. And we want to make sure that the information that they get is accurate and that they understand where that information came from and understand the accuracy. So this is for us a super big challenge. Um, and of course, we're going to fund a whole lot of research in this area um, as we move forward. And thank you. Thanks. Yeah, so we we have a lot of um, constraints that we deal with. Um, so within CDC, one of our constraints is we, we're uh, limited on what software we can use, what software is approved. So a lot of times we can't be on the bleeding edge because of that. Um, and then obviously we have data security and privacy challenges, um, you know, because we're dealing with health data. So there's always special considerations with that. So we, you know, have to be careful of this. And um, one of our biggest challenges is just data harmonization. So the way that public health works is, you know, the data is collected at the local and state level. So it's collected in many, many different ways. Every state, city, region kind of does things differently. So there's a, there's a trying to harmonize and standardize the data at a national level, you know, to be able to, to use it uh, for research purposes. And of course, one of our uh, biggest issues is just budget. You know, obviously our budget is... Uh, we're dependent on Congress for our budget. So as you guys know, you watch the news, there's it's always kind of like, we never know what's going to happen year to year with our budget. So, you know, there's a need for sustainable funding um, in order to, you know, really move things into the into the future. And um, at CDC in particular, there's a big, been a big emphasis on data modernization. So there's a data modernization initiative that they've been pushing to try to address some of these issues that are inherent to, to public health. So. so I get this really interesting experience of being able to look at a whole bunch of different agencies from a different sort of perspective, right? Sometimes it's outside. I went to a user's group uh, two days ago for the uh, for census, and there is a uh, there's a survey that they run, which is the basis of what we all think about the uh, the data that comes out of the census called the American Community Survey. And what it taught me is that all of these challenges about what are we going to do with the data? How are we going to use the data? How do we protect the data? How do we get data into the hands of the people that need it? Things like that. It goes even deeper than that. There are a whole set of people that are in the in the area of gathering data. And so this complicates things even more. So in the American Community Survey, as an example, you have to ask the right question to get an answer in the first place. And that means when you ask the question, everybody has to understand the context and what that question means in order to answer it so that you can get the right data, right? Then, uh, so as an example, what they were talking about is if we ask a question of people in a household, what does a household mean? We want the head of the family what's a family mean, right? Then when you ask that question, are you getting all of the, uh, you know, are you getting the answers of all of the individuals that are in that, in that set? Then there's privacy concerns. So they have, to, they have to make assurances that the data will remain private to get it in the first place. Then you collect it. Then there's a tension between the people that want to do research on the data and the people that are collecting the data, right? Because there's a trust model that takes place there. It's totally fascinating, and it, it's how we get to all these, all these, uh, all these issues around 
uh, data security, asking the right question. Justin's uh, showing us these great demos about how to ask the question. What's the right question? That is like one of the biggest uh, biggest issues around. And then what is the you know the, the likelihood that the answer is going to be able to be understood when you get it? Now, these are just totally fascinating things that we always have to think about. There's always going to be sort of this tension uh, between these two groups of people to get the the right question and the right answer. I think it's fascinating. You know, so I wanted to skip to our third question, actually, which really talks about data and how are you ensuring? I mean, we talk about, you know, there's lots of different sources of data. Not all of it can be accurate and some data can be trusted more than others. So how are you ensuring that the data that you're used in advanced analytics is accurate, reliable and secure? And maybe what steps are you taking to address any potential biases that could be in this data? I want to let you all answer that because you're in the, in the agencies. I'm, I'm really outside. I don't get a chance to make those decisions. Thanks. That is that is a great question. And it's a really hard one, as my colleague from CDC said. You know, the most important thing for us, especially in the world of real-world data, electronic healthcare data, clinical data that's um, useful, especially if we integrate things like administrative data or data from the CDC, contextual data about where you live, um, your propensity for asthma. Is, is greater in places like this because of the pollution levels and the climate. So those kinds of data are really important. That means that we have to um, adopt some common data elements. Um, and we do that mostly in the clinical world by defining, uh, as, as my colleague said, a set of questions that have a standard response and format. Harmonizing on that is definitely an issue. And so that's where a big push of our work, especially in the, in the healthcare research sector, has gone. But we know that a lot of data is pretty messy. There's missing data. For example, you could do brain scans over time. This is happening in the UK, but there's missing time points. So impugning that missing data is important. We're finding a lot of research to really help improve the data, the quality of the data, as well as the quality of the metadata that describes the data. This is, this is um, where we're pushing out in our data science fields because without um, those high quality data, understanding um, the metrics of that data is something that we're thinking about. The underlying models will have errors. And so for us, this has been a really big push, but we're really pushing um, in, the, in the research sector. Our agency data is, is much more high quality because we have control over that data in the sense that it is data that we generate about our agency, our grants. So that was a wonderful presentation on USAspending.gov, for example, which we are reporting to. Um, so that that is a bit better. I can talk if we talk about internally what happens at NIH and how we handle what we're funding and how we report out to USAspending.gov um, and the way that we uh, classify our grant applications in terms of I'm using machine learning to cluster grants and then serve them to other agencies for reporting mechanisms. But on the, that side, it's a little bit more structured because we we actually can't control that data. It's the research data, the healthcare data that we have the greatest challenges. Thank you. Yeah. So for us, as I mentioned, um, you know, we we don't at CDC, we tend to be like kind of secondary data users. So we get data that's been collected, like I said, in a variety of ways from a variety of different organizations. So, you know, we're trying to, my at least my goal is to kind of get as far upstream um, and get the data collected and coded in a standardized way, you know, uh, um, at the point of care, really. Like, I mean, I would love to see 
NIOPS be integrated into EHRs where, you know, if you're asked about work information uh, for your electronic health record, you know, it would be collected and coded instantaneously. So then it could be used to inform, uh, you know, health outcomes. Um, but that's, you know, it's a big challenge. Obviously, that's not going to happen overnight. But, um, but you know, the data that we have in, internally and that we code, you know, as I mentioned in my demo, we we have a team of professional coders that, you know, code and, and validate and verify our data that we then use to train the model so we can try to get the data coded in the most, you know, accurate and standardized way. And, um, you know, we all, as far as, um, you know, security of the data, I mean, everything that we have internally is on, you know, CDC servers, so everything's very locked down from that perspective. Um, and, you know, biases, I mean, that's something we haven't really, you know, approached to see if there's any kind of, um, you know, biases in how we code the data. I mean, I, I don't, think there would be because typically we're just looking at just the industry and occupation. We don't have any other, you know, uh, demographic demographic information that we're that we're looking at. So, um, you know, hopefully there's not really a lot of bias from that perspective. Thanks. Perfect. So I have a bunch more questions. I'm going to ask one more, but I will open it up because this is your opportunity to get to ask questions as well. So, you know, Stacey, earlier you had talked about funding and budgets, right? I mean, we're all constrained with budgets here. So what resources and investments are needed to support the development and deployment of advanced analytics in the federal government? And how are you advocating for those resources? Maybe we'll start with you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so for me, I mean, I've been um, I've been in management for quite many, many years in IT. So it's always been a challenge finding good, good resources. Um, so I, I would say just hiring in, especially in the federal space is, is very challenging because we have very rigid kind of requirements around hiring. And then, you know, um, up until very recently, we also had some geographic challenges of finding, you know, candidates in the, in the local area. We're actually, I'm actually based out of the Cincinnati, Ohio region. Um, but we, you know, we have offices all over, but with COVID, you know, that opened up to more remote work possibilities. Also, some of the skill sets that we're looking for, you know, with health informatics, it's it's still a really niche field. So that that's also posed challenges in, in fire, uh, finding qualified um, candidates. Actually, I'm just, I've been looking for about three years for a, for someone for my team that I finally found after after three years. So um, so yeah, I would say just the higher hiring is the biggest challenge. Sustainable funding is also a challenge because we don't have a lot of mechanisms, you know, for kind of multi-year and you know, a lot of this stuff, it's it's pretty big and audacious. So it really, you know, you can you can't accomplish it in one year. You know, you need longer, uh, kind of a longer project plan and project funding. So yeah, those are some of the big challenges. Thank you. Like um, my colleague Stacy, we also are, have challenges with um, hiring, not necessarily with retention. When folks come and work at NIH, they tend to stay at NIH for their entire career. So it's a wonderful place to work. Uh, but bringing people in and recruiting has been a challenge, particularly in the data and IT side, because we're competing with industry and industry is, um, you know, really quite a good competitor, let me put it that way. And so um, we, we we continue to to work towards bringing in a, a strong and qualified workforce by different ways, including internships. And um, people can come and spend one or two years working on challenging data science problems through our program. 
Um, other ways that we uh, advocate for resources and needs is through partnerships with other agencies. So NIH and most federal agencies in the health IT or just in the IT sector are part of the networking and information research and development um, interagency uh, OSTP uh, group, including NIH. And through those groups, we put out important uh, papers and, and documents about where the federal government is going and what's going to need resources. So, for example, a document on privacy preserving technology is just that there is. So you can see clearly that the agencies are thinking about ways in which we can protect uh, uh, data that is about people or or that does need protection in, in things like federated learning, for example, or one more quick encryption that tells um, the research community and the uh, industry sector that these are areas that the federal government would like to uh, see more investments in. Another activity that very, uh, very familiar with is the National Artificial Intelligence Research Resource uh, Initiative that's coming out of OSTP. So that tells the community that we would like to see much more uh, investments. There's a need for research resources in artificial intelligence, not just for actual uh, academics, but also for startup companies and, and businesses as well. So through uh, NIDRD and through OSTP, this is one of the mechanisms that we articulate as a, as a larger federal entity where there's really compelling needs for investment and con Congress pays attention to these reports. And so this is, a, this is an excellent way. And of course, we have our agency strategic plans. This is another great opportunity to engage our congressional um, colleagues in areas where we think the fields are going and where we see investments could be made. And uh, I've been very pleased with the interactions that we've had with our congressional colleagues in terms of our budget for NIH. It, it continues to be robust and, and with that, we're able to support a lot of different activities, including new data science activities. So one of the things I wanted to add about that was, while, while you all are, have the issue of trying to attract people that are educated and can work with data science, one of the things that, that we've been doing at Office, so I've been here for four and a half years, and if you look back, say, five or six years, you did not see advertising on uh, television locally for the universities pushing data science programs, right? They were pushing like cyber security sort of programs. And what I've seen is that this, this idea of everybody being involved in data science to a certain extent, right? Whether it's their primary job function or something that they just do on the side has been rising, right? So if you, you know, there's George Mason University, there's University of Maryland are pushing data science, artificial intelligence, of course, like is like the moonshot that's, that's just going on right now. Like as if we just said we're going to go to the moon in a few years. There's all sorts of stuff rising in, in enthusiasm about that. So what Alteryx has been doing for, we, we saw this at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Lots of people uh, get laid off <clears throat> from their jobs in the beginning of the pandemic. We pushed an education program that said, hey, we'll help you out. We'll give you a skill around data science where you may not have seen that before. And that helps sort of raise the you know the education that for everybody we also have a program called spark ed which uh they're teaching altrix they're using altrix in universities to teach data science as a as a tool to uh educate people on that so you know we're doing we're doing our part i hope it's helpful it is hope it's helpful. Spark ed is. you know and you have a unique perspective where you're able to look at many different agencies and you can you know see maybe what's needed different themes that not everybody always gets to see. So that's why it's it's great to have, you know, both industry and public sector on panels to really get that holistic 
perspective with the whole community. All right, I'm going to open it up now. Does anybody have questions? Okay. All right, so the question is interoperability between the different agencies. So if you look at the ecosystem of data across federal agencies, you know, you got the criminal data in the FBI, you've got tax records, which is probably a better source of address data than the service because they don't actually track people's location, just the physical address. You've got, you know, all of the great stuff at NIH and CDC and environmental data sets. You've got a rich set of medical claims medical claims data, SCMS, you've got the VA's claims data, you know, I could go on and on and on and on. However, I, I rarely see good interactions that are frictionless. Typically, there's a lot of friction between what, even inside the agency, forget trying to do public research, forget trying to get it exposed in a de-identified safe way, that's a whole other kettle of fish. But just getting an agency to talk to an agency, it's just crazy level, lots of friction, right? No standards, lots of paperwork. You, you get, is, is there any initiative that's actually trying to solve that? So, yeah, I can speak uh, to what CDC is doing. So, yeah, this is definitely a problem that we, we deal with. Um, and it's, you know, it was really um, kind of highlighted by when COVID hit and of course there was this huge public health emergency and and the data is so siloed, as I mentioned. And, you know, um, so, you know, CDC has been pushing for the last few years for this um, data modernization to occur where basically there would be, you know, more of a front door to the data that's coming into CDC because right now, the data comes in through, you know, kind of just directly into the programs or the divisions. Um, so, you know, I know that's something that is a huge priority right now. And, and we at NIOSH have also been engaged with that, you know, specific to work-related information to, you know, collecting it in a standardized way. I mean, we still have a long way to go, but it is something that, you know, we recognize as a huge challenge, even just within CDC. And then, yeah, if you bring in you know, working with other government agencies and, and things like that. Um, we're also working on standards, you know, at the national, international level. So standards development organizations like HL7 and IAG to, you know, like I said, specifically for occupational data to have it structured in a way and, and also promoting these interoperability standards like mes message mapping guides or, you know, through FIRE, um, the FIRE standard, you know, with how we send data, get, receive and send data, you know, between our, our partners and, and other agencies. But there's definitely a lot of work to be done, but it is it is something that we realize is an issue and, and something that is a is a priority. And, you know, a, a big, there's a big push uh, at CDC to do that. Thanks. Yeah, um, definitely COVID illustrated um, where we have some significant weaknesses in data sharing across agencies, even in HHS. It remains to be uh, something that we, we do strive to work towards. And I want to put a shout out for the Office of the National Coordinator, who develops a lot of really um, important standards like USCDI uh, for uh, ways to structure information that's collected. And for example, electronic health care records. So working, we work closely with uh, the Office of National Coordinator, trying to look to adopt their standards in research settings. That's something that could benefit um, all agencies. 
who deal with healthcare data. Uh, and so I think through through things like the National Coordination Office, uh, this is ways in which we can we can start to work together to share data in a more structured way. Go ahead. Yeah. What I think is interesting is that like the USA spending October is like a great example of sort of like some there's some sort of harmonization of data happening there with all these sources. I, I don't want to say calling, but like, was there something that you had to do to go in perhaps to some of the agencies? Because you said that all sending data down at the agency and individual grant level has, is being extracted. So is there, is there some answer here you might have to this? Yeah. Yeah, I, I wanted to jump in, but I don't want to derail the conversation. Um, to the question about like interoperability, is, is there like a government-wide effort or is it more kind of like initiative-based uh, from the USA setting perspective? It's kind of like Congress had to pass a law, the Data Act, to require um, standardization of agencies' financial systems data to come into U.S. spending. Because all the agencies um, track their spending at the account level differently. Uh, so this was like years of work before I even joined the program. And this community with the agencies and in collaboration with our team and OMB meet regularly to refine the data model. You know, there are, I, 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 like, if you look at program activities, you know, program activities that you find in the president's budget may not always align with program activities that are being reported by agencies currently. So this is something that we're, it's, it's an example of something that we're still trying, like kinks that we're trying to work out. Um, but it's very specific to the data that is uh, mandated to be reported to U.S. spending. I'll give you another example that's like not mandated. So right now, uh, I'm working on an initiative with the American Community Survey, uh, the ACS folks at Census, uh, using their community resilience estimate uh, as a way to study uh, the um, equitable distribution of federal spending. And this could be done through some kind of uh, linkage. And that linkage is the five-digit FIPS counting code. So ACS data, uh, community resilience data, uh, can show at the county level uh, different risk factors. Uh, they have a lot in their equity supplement that they identify. You can track federal spending to those um, uh, localities and try to determine if there's a correlation between spending for particular programs and risks that are associated with uh, those programs. So that's something that we are um, working on on the U.S. spending side to make the five-digit FIPS county code available so that linkage is possible. Right now, uh, you know, the county code. Huh? It's a census tract that you right now, right? Oh, no, we don't have census tract. Okay. Yeah, they do. They do, yeah. but they also have it at the county level. And so, you know, that's something that we always have to, like, negotiate, like, well, where is that um, point of intersection where the language can be made? And for us, it's at the county level. Yeah, just the last thing I want to say about it is that what I noticed from the user group meeting that I went to the other day is that there is a tension between those that collect data and hold it and those that want to use it for research. And I think that that tension is always going to be built in, uh, that you really have to want. And in some cases, you really have to want to know what the answer is badly to actually get the information. I think that's sort of this built in. Uh, that doesn't mean that you it may mean that you might not be able to get to the level of detail you want. They talk about this idea of the the, uh, the census people of uh, disaggregation, which is like a non sequitur, right? A disaggregation of the data, right? I can get aggregated data. Can I get the 
details, not necessarily because of privacy issues or a whole, whole variety of other things. It's kind of, it's like a built-in thing. So that's what I can characterize. All right, great. We have another question. Oh, hi, I'm Chris Summer the CEO of Helios Artificial Intelligence. Uh, thank you again for the panel. Quick question. One of the things that's been really surprising for our tech team has been the, the availability of open source AI tools. So, you know, pre-built ML models, NLP models, et cetera. How much flexibility do you have in the government to leverage some of those tools? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, I mean, that is a huge constraint for us on what tools and what data we can use. We are pretty restricted, at, at least at CEC. I assume that other government agencies face similar challenges. So um, that has thrown us some curveballs with kind of being more on the leading edge. Um, I mean, kind of what we're doing with NIOPS, what I demoed earlier, um, you know, we we are using some open source technologies for that. We use some pre-trained uh, word vectors from from Wikipedia and, and things. You know, we tried to leverage what was out there. So we we were we we are able to do some things, but um, but I would say on the on the software side specifically, we're constrained. And then you know, also with our data, we have um, you know constraints on our data. You know, uh, it's typically locked down by you know data use agreements on how we can what we can do with the data, how long we can keep it. So data retention is another problem that we face, especially with, you know, training our, our models and wanting to persist data. But then, you know, we work with NCHS and they want us to, you know, kind of purge the data after a couple of years. So then you're kind of just throwing all of that um, knowledge out the door. So, you know, it's it's a new world. And uh, with, you know, machine learning, I think, for for at least for us and we're we're trying to figure out kind of the best balance of you know with the data and with the tools how to work within our current framework and then also pushing for changes when when needed thanks as a primary research organization we actually have a lot more flexibility both in the way in which um, we fund researchers of course are free to use open access uh, or proprietary tools but we as an agency also partner for example, with Google, with AWS, with Microsoft Azure, with Palantir, with Lidos. Uh, we partner with a lot of large and small companies, um, both for our interworkings and our research activities. For example, the National COVID Cohort Collaborative is built on the Palantir platform with advanced analytics. So we are able to actually uh, partner with industries. We have a lot of different mechanisms to do that, including the other transactional authority, which is a very flexible uh, contract on steroids, um, which um, we and I think also our new uh, partner, ARPA-H, um, will be taking great advantage of. So um, we're certainly interested in talking with both large and small companies. We have a program called Strides, which is a partnership with cloud vendors to enable the use of cloud, um, both in NIH and the way that we do that, as well as our research community. We have over 210 petabytes of data on the cloud. So we're a significant, yeah, we're a significant cloud participant, and that's an, an open area for advanced analytics, advanced search. Um, and uh, so I think it's, you know, it's a really new way of NIH thinking that I've been really happy to be a part of. John, do you have anything to, to add? All right. And actually, Stacey, and the question is, is really has to do with, is the restriction because of, of um, information sharing, information ownership is like a data ownership issue. Like if you're using a third-party model and perhaps contributing to the model and there's issues of, of 
not having access to that model? I'm just trying to get an understanding of sort of the restrictions. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, this, so there's restrictions on kind of the software tools that we even have available for us to use. So we have like an approved software list that we, you know, basically have to work off and it tends to be, can be a little behind the times. So um, there are mechanisms in place to get things added to that list, but it's kind of a timely process, bureaucratic process. Um, and then as far as the data itself, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, so we, we get, we're mainly like secondary users of the data. So we're typically not the ones collecting it. So then we're kind of at the mercy of, you know, whoever owns the data. In our case, it's usually the state and local public health jurisdiction. So we, you know, have to be kind of mindful of that it's their data and that we're just using it. And, you know, we try to segment out to just, you know, the, the pieces of the data that, that we need, which is, you know, the work-related information. But, um, but, you know, as I mentioned, these we have to enter into these data use agreements, which can be really involved and and kind of tie our hands with what, you know, what we can do with the data and how long we can keep it. So looking at kind of um, things more longitudinally can be an issue um, as well. So. Okay, perfect. Well, we're just about at time, but I'm going to wrap up with one final question, get your parting thoughts on this. Looking forward, what emerging trends or technologies do you see shaping the future of advanced analytics in the federal government, and how are you preparing to adapt to these challenges? John, we'll start with you. Well, I mean, the artificial intelligence, the the breakthrough of ChatGPT over the last uh, couple of weeks has just been huge, but I just want to say it's like everything all at once, all the time. Uh, just the, the, the being able to try to upskill everybody to be able to work in a modern environment is extremely important. And I think that there's a lot of excitement around artificial intelligence and chat GPT, even though most people probably don't understand what that means and what the implications are. But it's going to get people excited and they're going to get, there's going to be a big push forward in this tech, in technology areas uh, related to this conversation. I think that's where it's going to be. That's what I yeah, and, and we've also been kind of um, keeping our eyes on chat, GPT. I mean, I think what we're doing with NIOX, you know, it's a very specialized domain of information that we're dealing with. Um, so, I mean, I think the NIOX system, you know, has its own need for maybe its own, uh, you know, algorithms to, to code the data. But, you know, it's something we we definitely want to keep our eyes on what's going on in that, in that space and, and try to keep up to date. Um, you know, we... We also are always looking, you know, to to bring new resources on on board and to you know um, kind of stay ahead of, of the tool, you know, new tools that are that are coming about, and you know, always looking to um, try to you know modernize our tools and and be able to use the data in more actionable ways. So you know, the real time data collection and the push for that is really where. You know, I'd like to see things go, you know, to basically have NIOX used, you know, uh, as far upstream as we can get it and have the data collected and coded, you know, in in real time, you know, at the at the point of um, where when the data is collected. So thank you. Thanks. So, wow, there's so many great opportunities to talk about. Um, but because this is an advanced analytics form, I think what I'm most excited about is the the integration of the large language models with the very specific domain-specific language models. There's been a great paper out about using this in MIMIC, in the MIMIC 3 and 4 data set in the healthcare field. What I'd love to see is 
that ability to take the information um, gathered from, from those more precise iterative language models and, and curate the data. We cannot manually curate data anymore. This is an old-fashioned way of thinking. We really have to utilize analytics to really curate the data, give it a measure of quantity and quality, and then feed that back into our algorithms for better um, assessment of bias and transparency. And so I'd love to see that. I've been talking to various forms about that. Uh, I think that that's still somewhat of an area of research, um, probably also an industry, but this is really where the big win is for my field is to really provide that um, sort of AI analytic curated data where we don't have to try to convince clinicians um, to adopt thousands of common data elements, um, but really think about how can we get that data in the right format at, at the time that it's generated rather than funding a hundred data curators to try to go do it afterwards. That is not the right model anymore. Yeah, well, thank you all of you for your incredible insights. At our last, our April 2023 Gut Future Forum, our hot topic panel was on large language models. And I think that this topic is only going to continue to be a theme no matter what our hot topic panel is. We have cloud, we have cyber coming up. I think we're still going to be talking about it. So again, thank you, Susan, Stacy, and John for being on the panel. We've got great resources. If you're looking to get more insights and details on a range of technology that we discussed in this podcast and other topics as well. Check out our resources, books, courses, checklists, explainer videos, webinars, and more at govfuture.com slash resources, tailored for our GovFuture listeners. Again, that's govfuture.com slash resources, and we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes as well. To view this episode's show notes, find additional episodes, subscribe to this podcast, and join the fastest growing community of government innovators. Go to govfuture.com slash podcast. This sound recording and its contents are copyright GovFuture, all rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the GovFuture podcast and catch you at the next episode.